it was wonderful to be away. Um, saw some great things, not the least of which uh, was was two of our three daughters. Um, had fun with them in Chattanooga and Memphis, and then made our way to Virginia and saw a whole bunch of really cool stuff. Experienced a whole bunch of really fascinating things. We were standing in James Monroe's living room. He wasn't there, of course. Um, but we were standing in his living room when, uh, in, the, in the inimitable words of Carol King, the earth began to move underneath our feet. We felt the earth move under our feet. And the walls shimmy and shake and the china in the cabinets make rattling sounds. And so we all scurried outside and stood in Mr. Monroe's front yard next to a white oak tree that was over 300 years old, wondering if that white oak tree would topple over and crush us in the house. And then after about a minute or so, everything settled down and, and things returned to normal. It was fun. I mean, it was interesting, very interesting. And then we dodged Irene, you know. So it was, um, it was fun. It was a nice time away, fascinating stuff that we saw. And one of the most enjoyable things, uh, actually, of the whole trip, and I'm going to take a cue from, uh, from this. One of the most enjoyable things of the whole trip actually was listening to a series of lectures, 14 out of 48, we only got through 14 of them, by a fellow named Robert Greenberg, who is a musician and a composer and who uh, has, has put these lectures together, which you can get through the great courses, and the title of this whole thing is called How to Listen to and Understand Great Music. And it was fabulous. We listened to Robert Greenberg, whose name in Italian sounds a whole lot more romantic. Roberto Monteverdi. He, he, I think, really wishes that he had born Italian, been born Italian. And it was great fun. And at the beginning of every lecture, here's what he would do. He would say, welcome back to the third edition of How to Listen to and understand great music. And then he would review what he had done in the previous lecture or two. So, welcome back to Romans 8. And here's what I want to do this morning. I want to get us using three headings, three words, if you will. I want to get us back into Romans 8. You've been in Philippians, you've been in Jonah, you've been in Ecclesiastes, I think, or maybe, maybe Proverbs, I guess it was Proverbs, but you haven't been in Romans. Uh, I have been. I've been living with Romans 8 for the last three weeks. And I want for all of us to get back uh, into this passage and hopefully into the Apostle Paul's head and hopefully into the mind and the heart of God. Again, using three words, not words that come out of the text, but words that I think can be used as a way to sort of remind us and summarize for us and review for us where we've been. And here are the three words. Remind, respond, and rehearse. Remind, respond, and rehearse. First, Remind. This is a reminder. This is a reminder. As we look at Romans chapter 8, I want to say two things that I've said before. Number one, we have transitioned from Romans chapter 7 into chapter 8. 
Romans chapter 7 left us with verse 24, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Romans chapter 7 left us in despair and hopeless. And the transitional verse, verse 25, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord, so that I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. Verse 1, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And the thing that is going on in Romans chapter 8, this is by way of reminder, the thing that is going on in Romans chapter 8 is Paul, in effect, is returning to Romans 5 verse 1, where he began to enumerate and unpack and enlarge upon all of the benefits that come to God's people because they are justified in Christ, accepted in Christ by Christ, and they have been transferred They've been transferred from a realm of bondage and death and hopelessness and despair into the realm of the life-giving Spirit in whom are freedom and hope and liberation. What's going on in Romans chapter 8 is life in the Spirit. That's what Paul is unpacking for us. And here's the second thing I want to say just by way of reminder, and that is this. As you think about where we are in this passage, I want to, if I haven't said it before, then it isn't a reminder. But if I have said it before, it's a reminder. There are some portions of Scripture that sort of rise to the top of the heap. The whole of the Bible is the Word of God for us. The whole of Scripture has value. Paul reminds Timothy of that in 2 Timothy 3. All scripture is inspired by God and is profitable. It's all profitable. But there aren't there some passages in the scripture, some portions of scripture that just sort of kind of rise to the top. And if you think as the way some people have thought about the Bible, uh, using this as an illustration, if you think of the Bible as a, as a ring, uh, a ring in which is set a precious lustrous stone. The whole thing is the ring and the whole thing has value. But some of it is the ring and some of it is the setting and some of it is the stone and some of it is the luster of the stone. Right? The way that it's cut and the manner in which it is cut then gives it a certain luster and attractiveness and beauty and appeal. Let me just suggest to you that Romans chapter 8, like other passages in the scriptures, like John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him would not perish, but would have everlasting life. That rises to the top. Psalm 23 The Lord is my shepherd. In fact, the first five words of Psalm 23 rise way above a whole lot of stuff that's in the Scriptures, all of which is true in His value. But the idea that the one living and true God, the Lord of heaven and earth, the self-existing, self-contained, self-glorifying God is My shepherd. I preached on this when I was in Tanzania. 
said to all these pastors, I said, you think Psalm 23 is for you? It's not. It's for me. It's mine. The Lord is my shepherd. He's not your shepherd. He's mine. I had a woman come up to me afterwards. She got right in my cage and she said, oh no, he's mine too. There are some passages that rise to the top. And this is one of them. This is one of the passages that just rises to the top. And in this passage, throughout this eighth chapter, there are concepts and ideas that are simply staggering, overwhelming, hard to get your mind around, your heart around, hard to keep in perspective. And yet these things, folks, in this eighth chapter become the ground upon which the Christian life is lived, become the soil out of which the Christian life is lived, become the nutrients that serve to feed and strengthen the Christian life. This chapter is about the Christian life. And it is as important, I'm convinced, as any Passage to be found any place in the Bible. Romans chapter 3, 21 to 25. We took a number of weeks with those verses. Why? Because in that packed, dense little paragraph, there is explained for us the ground and the basis upon which you may have assurance that you are in fact accepted by God. And it's all because of what Jesus did. The whole of the letter leads up to those verses. Chapter 3, verses 21 to 25. The ground of your acceptance. It's a critical passage. You can't just pass over it. You've got to pull it apart and untie it and unknot it. And this passage is just like it. Because this whole idea of being in Christ Jesus, of being in the Spirit, this idea of being relocated, hard to get my mind, my heart around, is foundational for the living of the Christian life. So those are just reminders. And that's why I think it's so important that we spend time in this chapter. Look, folks, you're going to hear me say this again in a minute, so I'll say it now. My interest is not in getting through Romans. That's not my interest. My interest for myself and for us, my interest is in getting what Romans is about. That's my interest. And it may take me longer to get it than it takes you, but as long as I'm your pastor, you're stuck with me in this as I try to figure this out for me. So that's a reminder. This is a critical passage. We've only been in it five weeks. Martin Lloyd-Jones preached 33 sermons on verses 5 through 17 of chapter 8. I'm not going to do that to you, but we're going to take more time with it. So that leads to the second thing, just, just a reminder, and that is this. The second word, respond. 
And here's what I'm referring to when I, when I use this word respond. Here's what I want us to understand. I want us to understand something about the nature of the Bible and the nature of preaching. The nature of the Bible and the nature of preaching. And here's what I mean. And this is one of the reasons that it will take us longer to go through Romans 8 than it would take you to go through Romans 8 if you were in a classroom. Okay? If you were in a classroom. This is not a classroom. There's more going on here than goes on in a classroom. Here's here's the point. The Bible is interactive. The Bible is interactive. And because the Bible is interactive, preaching must be interactive. And here's what I mean by that. Read the Bible. In fact, use Romans as an example, as an illustration. Every book in the Bible, Genesis to maps. You know the maps that are at the end? Genesis, every book in the Bible is given to real people living in real places in real time. And because every book in the Bible, while the whole of the Bible and every book in the Bible is there for all of God's people across all of human history, all of redemptive history, we must never forget that every book in the Bible is given to real people living in real places in real time who have real and specific needs. Genesis is given to whom? It's given to you. It's given to me. But to whom was it given originally? It was given to Israel. And where were they? They were between Egypt and the promised land. And what did they need? They needed specific encouragements and specific teaching and specific reminders and specific rebukes to encourage them along the way. The books of the Bible don't fall out of the sky, land under a rock someplace in upstate New York, along with a special pair of spectacles that enable you to read that mysterious book so as to give it out to people. That's not how the Bible works. The Bible comes to real people who can read, who can hear, who can understand, and it comes to meet their very specific needs and concerns. And Romans comes to us in the same way. Think back across Romans. Paul is constantly asking questions. Romans 4 verse 1, Romans 6 1, 6 15, 7 1, 7 7. He's constantly asking questions. What about this? What about this? What about this? Why is he doing that? He's doing it because this letter is going to real people living at a real place in real time who have real questions. And preaching. Preaching is to be like the Bible in that respect. It's to be interactive. Preaching is not lectures. Preaching is not a chat. Preaching is not, and I'm I'm not picking a fight here, okay? I want you to understand what this thing is that we call preaching. It's not a chat. It's not a motivational talk. It's not a collection of clever insights packaged in such a way as to leave people saying when it's all over, gee, that guy's a great communicator. That's not what preaching is. 
Preaching is to be like the Bible. Preaching is the deadly, serious business. The deadly, serious business of desperately needy people trying to find truth and hope and life-altering words from the infinite personal God who is really there. That's what preaching is. It is a deadly serious business. The preacher has a role in it. The congregation has a role in it. Your role, frankly, and if you want some, some, some more help in this from, from the church in the past, then I'll encourage you to look at the Westminster Larger Catechism and questions 152 through about 158, which talk about the means of grace, which Barb is going to talk about on Saturday, ladies, and the exact role of the means of grace in the life of a believer and how it is that through the means of grace it is actually Christ who is imparting something to us, doing something in us. And if you read those questions and answers, you'll see some of what the duties are of congregants who come to hear the Word of God. We pray, we anticipate, we listen, we're attentive, we engage. That's your role in this. And the preacher has a role as well. And it is to study, and it is to think, and it is to pray, and it is to reflect, and it is to ask himself, what does this Word of God have to do with me? First, folks, the best sermons that any preacher will ever preach are the sermons that Jesus first preached to him, if you know what I mean. What does this word have to do with me as a sinner in need of the grace of Jesus Christ? And so the preacher has a role to study and to think and to pray, but the preacher has a responsibility to listen as well. Listen to you. And so preaching is interactive because in preaching, I am doing my dead level best to speak not just matters of truth, but matters of truth that speak to the specific needs and concerns of this specific group of people. Whether that group of people is prepared to acknowledge those specific needs or not. As well as being willing to speak to the specific needs that you are willing to acknowledge and have acknowledged. Let me give you a specific example of how this works. The last time that I preached at Christ the King, I preached from Romans chapter 8. And in the course of that sermon, on August 7th, I suggested that Paul gives three reasons for fleeing unrighteousness and sin and for pursuing righteousness. One of them is negative, one of them is positive, and one of them is what I called filial or family. It's a family motivation. And after that sermon, someone came up to me afterwards. I had said this. I said the negative reason for fleeing sin is reflected in verses 6 and 13 of Romans 8. The mind set on the flesh is death. If you live according to the flesh, you will die. I'm going to say more about this next week. 
But just understand what Paul's doing. He's, he's seeking to motivate us. He's seeking to set before us that there are negative consequences to the pursuit of sin, to setting the mind on the flesh and pursuing sin. And, and the negative consequence is death. And this person came up to me after the sermon and said something like this. I need to hear more about this. I need for you to talk more about this. I need to understand this better. And not only do I need to understand it better, but somebody was sitting next to me who after the sermon leaned over and said to me or or said to me following the sermon, does that mean that when I sin, when I do set my mind on the flesh, when I should happen to lapse into this pattern of living according to the flesh in any way to any extent, does that mean that I'm losing my salvation? Now listen, folks, I'll bet you anything that there isn't just one person in this room who wonders about that, who questions, my goodness, if I do that again, will that disqualify me from acceptance with the Father I have to interact with these things. I have to interact with these questions, with these needs. I can't just say, well, we've got to keep going or we'll never get through Romans. Do you understand? That is the nature of preaching. Again, I'm going to talk about this more and and help you understand this more. Some of what goes on in preaching, preaching is not just the dissemination of information. It's interacting with the real hearts and the real minds of real people who, like this person from time to time, labor under a tremendous doubt and fear and guilt. And I can't just say, dealt with that last week, we got to move on. I can't. Maybe other people can, but I can't. So what do I say? What do I say to someone like that? If preaching is interacting, if preaching is what the Bible is, this interaction between God and His Word and people who are hearing His Word because they need to hear His Word and need to be enlivened and shaped and helped and encouraged by it. I wrestle. And I come back to things. And I keep talking about things to try to press precious, life-giving, soul-freeing truths home to those in the midst of the struggle. And in this particular case, in the case of any of you here who may question, who may wonder, can I lose my salvation? If I do this thing again, Will I be kicked out of the family? Will I be disqualified? Two things I want to say. First, come to me. Let's talk. Let's talk. You know what preaching is in one sense? Just belabor this just a little bit. You know what preaching is in one sense? It's group therapy. It's group therapy. 
not, not the way popular culture conceives of group therapy. This is counseling, my friends. This is pastoral counseling. That's what preaching is. Preaching is not a lecture. It's not disseminating information. It's not packaging something so that people think you're a good communicator. God banished that from His church. This is pastoral counseling. And I'm the one who needs the counseling the most. And when Jesus gives me something of precious value, do I want to stick it in my pocket and keep it hidden? No. I want you to have it too. So, the first thing I would say, if you're, if you're struggling with this, if, you, if guilt, shame are overwhelming you, if you question whether or not God loves you, please come and see me. Let's talk. Let's talk about this together. Let's encourage each other. Let's move out of group therapy into face-to-face therapy. Therapy is a good word. It's just been stolen from us. Just like psychology and psychiatry and psychoanalysis. I wrote an article one time. And it started this way. It said, I'm a psychotherapist, I'm a psychiatrist, I'm a psychoanalyst, I am a pastor. Let's talk. Tsuke, the Greek word, comes from the New Testament. It means soul. I'm a soul doctor. I'm one who seeks to analyze sicknesses of the soul so that we can talk about them, so we can take the medicine of the gospel in this setting and in face-to-face conversations and seek by God's grace to apply that medicine to what ails us. Okay? So come see me. And then second, let me say, if you are here and you worry, having come to Christ, you worry whether if I do this thing again, I will be kicked out of the family, cut off from the grace of God. The answer is no, 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 never, 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 absolutely not. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. None. Ever again. No threat. No threat. I don't know who you are. I hope you are here. I want you to hear Jesus saying this, not me. You are mine. You belong to me. There is no threat to you ever again. So preaching, preaching involves responding to what people really feel, really need. And preaching that doesn't do that, in my humble opinion, is not serving the office of preaching. And the last thing, rehearse. Rehearse. What do you do when you rehearse? Maybe this sounds like I'm saying the same thing three times, just using three different words. Maybe I am. What do you do when you rehearse something? You go over it again and again and again and again and again. You go over it until it becomes second nature. We listen to some delightful music while we're traveling up and down Interstate 95, dodging hurricanes and earthquakes. 
And I will tell you this, the music that we listen to on those CDs, the music that you listen to when you listen to anyone play music well, you know this about it. They rehearsed it. They went over it again and again and again until it became second nature. The real joy, ask a musician, the real joy in playing an instrument, the real joy comes when you're no longer conscious of the instrument. And the music is happening. Folks, there are some things in this eighth chapter that I feel absolutely constrained and compelled to rehearse again and again and again. And I'm going to show you these things very, very quickly. And I'm going to press home to you the need for rehearsal by asking questions. Verse 2 of Romans chapter 8. The law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus. Now let me ask you, I ask myself, are you free? Are you free? Not in your head, my friends. Not in your head. Look, there are some of you in this room who can articulate the truths better than I can. I'm not talking about knowing stuff. I'm talking about being free. Are you free? Free of fear. So free. So free. That it doesn't matter what anybody in the universe thinks about you. Because the one person in the universe whose opinion about you really matters says to you, you belong to me. You are mine. I have loved you with an everlasting love. And let me just remind you that an everlasting love never goes away. If it went away, it wouldn't be everlasting. You're mine. You belong to me. The one person whose opinion of you in the whole of the universe is the God of heaven and earth who has loved you in Jesus Christ and who has made you with Jesus his very own child so that he is your father and Jesus is your big brother and whatever belongs to Jesus belongs to you. Are you free? The law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Verse 6. Verse 6. To set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. Life and peace. What characterizes, what characterizes the condition of my heart? Not the circumstances around me, not what's going on in the world, not the, the terrible deterioration that everyone rightly should be concerned about that we see not only in our culture but a whole lot of other places, well, but the condition of your heart. The mind set on the spirit. You see what's being offered here? You see why I can't skate over this? I want life and peace. Do I have it? Do you have it? To such a great extent 
that no matter what happens around me, I'm unmoved. I'm unmoved. Now, look, one of the things we're going to talk about is expectations. What is reasonable to expect in this spiritual life as I live in the realm of the Spirit? We'll talk about expectations. You're going to hear two words. Nothing is perfect and nothing is permanent in the midst of the world. But do I have tastes of this life and peace? What's the posture of my heart? Can I get to the place? Is it possible to get to the place where Paul was in Philippians 4? I have learned the secret of being content in whatever circumstance I find myself. Verse 13. If by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live, then you will experience life even in the midst of death with a body falling apart, a body dying. Still you will experience life if by the Spirit I put to death the deeds of the body. What are the deeds of the body? How do I put them to death? What does it mean to do that by the Spirit? We need to figure this out, folks. We need to figure this out. We need to figure out what the deeds of the body are and how it is that by the Spirit they get put to death. Verse 14, all who are led by the Spirit are the sons and the daughters of God. What is it to be led by the Spirit. Is being led by the Spirit waking up in the morning and getting directives for the day from the Holy Spirit? Is it a, I've used this phrase, is it a quiver in the liver? No, friends, it is something very substantive to be led by the Spirit and to be led by the Spirit in such a wonderfully substantive way that from my heart I cry out, Abba, Father, in my heart of hearts, I know above every other thing that I am this child of God. Verse 18. Verse 18. Of Romans chapter 8. I've got to read this. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed in us. Can I say that? Can I say that? That the losses and the crosses of this life don't matter. when contrasted with the incomprehensible hope that I am given in the gospel. See, there's so much here, and I've just used a few of the phrases that we need to take more time to look at in order better to understand and live out the realities of what it means to be in the Spirit and in Christ Jesus. That's where we're headed, folks. We're going to do, I guess, a kind of a mini-series in the midst of the whole Romans thing. And it's a series on what it looks like, what it is to live the Christian life. These are the details of Romans 8 that I've been referring to for these last weeks. Would you please pray? Would you pray for me? 
Would you pray for us that God, by his grace, would press this stuff home to us in ways that liberate us, free us evermore, and invigorate us for truly faithful living in the midst of this world. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, please show us your mercy. Lord, I care what's going on in your world. I really do. I care what's going on around us. But Lord Jesus, more I can't do anything about that stuff. The thing I care most about is that we together as a congregation of your people would be molded and shaped and formed and fashioned after the image of our big brother Jesus who's redeemed us that more and more we might know real and true freedom. Be with us in these weeks to come to that end. In Jesus' name, amen.